Hello, friends. Welcome to another episode of The Vast Majority. I'm Jacobin Deputy Editor Micah Utrecht. To talk about work in America, in any country under capitalism, is to talk about violence. And the way we typically remember industrial work of the post-World War II era is thinking of it as maybe monotonous, maybe unpleasant at times, but a stable and well-paying position that made a decent life possible for enormous numbers of working-class people in the United States. That idea is definitely challenged from an excellent new book by the labor historian Jeremy Malloy, Blood, Sweat, and Fear, Violence at Work in the North American Auto Industry, 1960 to 1980. It's an academic history, but Jeremy is to be commended for writing a book that is extremely readable. He chronicles violence in American and Canadian auto factories from 1960 to 1980 in ways that totally blew my mind that were about a regular, pervasive violence on the factory floor that I had no idea was the case before reading this book and he has some uh, reflections both in the book and in our conversation about what his research on this violence in auto factories has to say about the violence of work generally under capitalism. Jeremy Malloy is a scholar who researches, writes, and teaches about work, violence, addiction, and capitalism in Canada and the United States. He's the author of Blood, Sweat, and Fear, as well as two forthcoming books, one collection of writings about violence at work, and another about addiction in the American workplace. Here's my conversation with Jeremy Malloy. Jeremy, welcome. Micah, thank you very much. So before I read this book, I think I had the view of auto work in sort of mid-century America that is very similar to what what most people think about such work, which is uh, these were sort of good jobs, well-paid. Uh, they were, you know, maybe monotonous, but uh, they, they were sort of like stable and well-compensated uh form of labor that was uh, very dominant in the American economy uh, in, in the in the post-war period. And I have to say, I've been thoroughly disabused of at least the notion of, of these jobs being like pleasant to benign. Uh, the portrait that you paint in this book of what work on the uh, auto factory plant floor looks like is one that is very much uh, summed up in your title, Blood, Sweat, and Fear. It's like, uh, did, doesn't seem, didn't make it seem like a particularly uh, pleasant place to be working from, at least from the period 1960 to 1980 that you cover. Yeah, I mean, Mike, I feel like that's the historian's job. You know, we're the well, actually, the historians and social, <laughs> of, you know, humanities, social sciences people. And I think um, my book kind of fits in uh, with uh, another recent book that uh, is worth checking out, Daniel Clark's book, uh, Disruption in Detroit, which really kind of uh, makes a very compelling argument that these jobs weren't actually that well paying. Um, it was so many people got laid off consistently. Um, and, uh, you know, that they, they were always doing other jobs. Uh, work was actually a lot more kind of precarious and, and actually something that, that workers today would probably recognize rather than the, you know, the ideal is you say, you go in, you clock in at GM at 20, you work at 30 years, you get that pension, you got the boat out of the lake. And, you know, it was a, it was a grind, but you know, you put two kids through college and, and, uh, you know, it was worth it. Um, and it wasn't worth it for a lot of people, uh, not only in Clark's work, uh, but also what I think my book shows. And, and certainly when re people read it and I talk to them, they are struck by, you know, how violent these workplaces were. Um, these were really terrible jobs, both in terms of just monotony, um, being turned into a machine, being alienated from your job, um, but also for how dangerous they were. Uh, your chances of, of being maimed or hurt or having a heart attack on the job or having a forklift flip over on you um, or just repetitive stress injuries. Uh, and, and as my book particularly focuses on the different forms of violence that people had to deal with. I mean, even myself researching the book, um, there were, you know, times when I was thinking about this workplace uh, and, and saying, like, how are people just letting this go on? 
Like, you know, like how are people not just like, we need to close these factories down until we can get a handle on this um, because of the levels of violence were so endemic. Yeah, so why don't you just talk about what the, that level of violence is? I mean, maybe first you emphasize that th- there is a kind of violence inherent to the work process, uh, you know, independent from interpersonal violence happening on the factory floor. There is there is violence uh, of the work process. So can you describe that, that violence of uh, working in auto? A lot of what we have... Uh that exists that people have written about workplace violence is, is, as you say, interpersonally focused. Uh, it really focuses on violence as something that originates from the psyches of workers. Uh, you know, they're mapped to the work. They have specific grievances with other workers. And so a lot of it is from a psychological or industrial management uh, point of view. Uh, and they're very much from an employer point of view saying, how do you identify these people? How do you screen them out? How do you, how do you mollify them? Uh, how do you make sure that they don't blow up, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and as somebody, you know, who's trained in more of a materialist approach, like I really looked at, uh, what is happening with the labor process? Like my work traces the rise and fall of violence at Chrysler in Detroit over a 25 year period. And it's not that Chrysler just hired a bunch of bad people starting in the mid 1960s. <laughs> you know, and that, that's not the explanation why violence literally skyrockets uh, at that plant. It's because the labor process changed and the labor process to, in auto to some extent has always had violence baked into it. Um, there, you know, there's just an enormous amount of, as I said, you know, injurious work, repetitive strain, uh, risks of inhaling toxic exposures, risks of being maimed uh, by, you know, a stamping press or, or you know, a machine that you're using on the line, um, you know, enormous amount of weight people are carrying. So there's always that aspect of it. But of course, the key kind of driver of stress is, is the line itself, right? That, and how fast is that line moving? Um, and, and, you know, how fast are the people thus expected to move to try to keep up with it? Uh, and that's a, that's the central dynamic of, of auto work and, and that hasn't changed. Uh, and it's, and it's a violent dynamic, uh, and one that has conflict at its, at its heart because, you know, the employer is always seeking to drive that line as fast as possible and the workers are trying to survive and, and, and have some semblance of dignity and enjoyment and, and health. Right. So what are the, the tangible examples of, of that, uh, that, that process at work? I mean, what, what is the, the, the company doing over the time period that you cover, the, com- the companies, I guess, in the multiple auto factories? What, what are they doing to uh, increase that level of violence and, and, and stress and strain on their workforce uh, just at the level of the production process alone? How does that change over time? Yeah, um, change over time is exactly um uh the right word and and i guess it might seem super basic but i really thought that that was the major comparison the major contribution i could make to understanding violence at work uh through this book and this project so there's been some some good recent work on it lately um but it's very recently focused and and the tools that a historian has and and the discipline and the kind of things that we do and we're good at hadn't really been applied and one of those was looking at at violence at work over a long period of time um like you know over the past 20 years, there's an enormous amount of uh, legislation and employer policies about workplace violence. Like, uh, you know, people who are listening, chances are you have a workplace violence policy at your job. Chances are you've had a workplace violence training of some kind, right? Um, but all of these things I noticed proceeded from this kind of like idea that workplace violence was a new problem. And the workplace violence started happening in the mid 80s when people started going postal, right? And bringing semi-automatic weapons into, into you know, stores and factories and post offices. And so as a historian, I wanted to say, like, we don't really know anything about the history of the last 50 years in terms of workplace violence. What if we looked at it and saw how violence changed over time, whether it did or not, and what factors were causing that change? So what I did was I looked at 25 years of grievances, um, because I have a a historian's disposition, which doesn't mean uh, particular intelligence or imagination, but does mean the ability to sit on your ass for a very long time going through 25 years of grievances from the largest Chrysler plant in Detroit. So that's how I tried to like understand change over time in that workplace specifically. Yeah. So before we talk about that, which I think is a fascinating part of your book, um, there, there was in this time period, uh, you write about uh, Chrysler working its workers much harder and sort of trying to, uh, to wring out more production from fewer of them. Uh, you know the, the 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 rate of production uh, uh like 
overall is going up and the, and the, and the number of employees who are there to make that production happen uh, is going down, uh, which adds to this constant uh, kind of strain and stress on, on these workers, um, in addition to all of these increase in uh, injuries and, and, all, and all the rest of it, right? Absolutely. Like, so, you know, when we when we started, you talked about kind of like the image of the, of the post-war auto worker as this like working class aristocrat, right? With a, with a pretty good job. The other big part of the mythology of that era is that there's some kind of compact between labor and capital, right? Which there is to an extent, but like class war between labor and capital does not end. And Chrysler throughout the 50s and 60s does all kinds of things to take back the most power they can over the shop floor. Uh, you know, uh, eating away at traditional, um, you know, structures and practices that workers had to try and control um, disputes and also control the pace of the line. And they've done a pretty good job of that by the early 60s. And, and, and as a matter of political economy, Chrysler is in this interesting spot because things are pretty good. You got America's in that boom economy of, of the Vietnam boom, right? But at the same time, they're getting squeezed tighter and tighter uh, by competition, by foreign automakers. And Chrysler doesn't have uh, the kind of operating capital, the kind of deep pockets that GM uh, or the Ford do, not that there weren't violence in those plants. So Chrysler's strategy to make as much money as possible, basically, to produce as many cars as possible, is how do we make the line go faster uh, with fewer people? And so they, they, they do that through, uh, I think, a very signal example of what we might call racial capitalism, where they bring uh, African-American workers, some of them transplants from the Deep South, some of Detroiters, you know, they come in with the lowest amount of seniority, they hire more supervisors to drive these, these workers harder, and uh, basically they, um, you know, just accomplish kind of an automation speed up through the relentless abuse and exploitation of a predominantly young African-American workforce. And this happens in the late 60s and early 70s. So that's the major change in the labor process. And that's the, exactly the same time in my research that I noticed um, all types of interpersonal violence at that plant go way up. Yeah, I mean, this is supposed to be the golden era, or part of the golden era of U.S. capitalism. But your book is basically describing that even in the, it, it's not like thing that there were sort of 30 golden years. And then once neoliberalism comes around, then things start getting worse. Then there's attacks on unions and deindustrialization, all that stuff that we know. It's that like literally as soon as almost as soon as the, the golden era begins, uh, capital is, is chipping away at, uh, you know, the, the, the good pay, the stable jobs, the safe jobs, the jobs that are uh, enjoyable to do the jobs that will not uh, maim and, and kill and, and hurt you uh, and that will not make you go insane on the factory floor. I mean, that's that's present from like very on in this period. Yeah. And I mean, let's not forget that like that even that whole compact rested on labor, uh, you know, castigating and, and casting out the, you know, the most leftist elements of, of, you know, labor organizing the working class. And that there are all kinds of other, you know, black, female, migrant workers that were service workers, retail workers that were shut out. But even within this limited bargain, um, absolutely what you have is, is um, a lot of precarity, a lot of uh, violence at work, and, and an employer who is determined to get the most out of, uh, out of their you know, investment in human capital. And, and that means that people are driven really hard. So you mentioned your, your methods, uh, your examination of these grievance records, which was fascinating to me. It give, I, I'm sure other historians maybe have done this. Maybe they haven't. I don't know. But I haven't read any books where, where historians have done this. And it gives you an incredible view sort of on the factory floor of like what life was like and it, life seems like a war zone based on the stuff that uh that you know that the, the reasons why workers were getting in trouble or the uh dispatches from like shop stewards or other union officials who were writing about what they were seeing on the factory floor what was going on on the factory floor that they, what what the issues were that they had to represent workers over when they were being disciplined by the company and it's just an incredible uh a detailed granular view of what life was actually like on the floor for these workers. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, historians have written like on the larger kind of collapse of the liberal consensus in America as being in large part about being, a, you know, it breaks down once groups start successfully pressing to be, you know, allowed in that that golden charm circle, right, of, of, of the New Deal order. And, you know, uh, how far are, are, are the powers that be willing to let black Americans, willing to let queer Americans, willing to let female Americans into that, right? And, and those struggles in, in some sense kind of doom the order. 
there's lots of other things that happen too, but you see that happening in this workplace, basically. What stability there was is kind of um, being eaten uh, alive from the inside in these Chrysler plants. So Chrysler makes this move uh, that on the one hand gives them more control over the workplace and allows them to pump out tons of cars, but also within it, um, because there is so much violence, so much tension, uh, you know, the operating uh, metaphor, a lot of people who worked in those plants or observed those plants used at the time as a prison, uh, you know, complete with guards, complete with cops showing up, complete with murders, complete with knifings, right? Complete with drug dealing and, and uh, you know, uh, illicit gambling uh, runs, right? I mean, I've always thought it would make an incredible, uh, you know, long form dramatic series uh, because of, of, of all the different dynamics that are present here. Um, it kind of sowed the seeds of its, of its own destruction, basically. Um, Chrysler uh, kind of got everything everything it wanted in terms of taking control of the shop floor. So Chrysler is ultimately responsible for how much violence there was there. Um, but I don't think people were really prepared for for kind of the reckoning that happened in the late sixties and early seventies. Now the book starts, or the book's focus is the night. It starts in nineteen sixty. Now this is after the the immediate post war period where in the auto industry in North America there is this you know, clash uh, over who is going to control the shop floor. Uh, you know, spoiler alert for <laughs> listeners, Capital wins that wins that contest. And there's, you know, the fascinating history there about, you know, UAW leaders like Walter Ruther and uh, they're, uh, you know, for at first sort of attempting to actually maintain some control of, of, uh, of the factory floor, but also uh, sort of downplaying, rank and file focused uh organizing in order to, to maintain control of it but eventually it's given up eventually it's lost and the sort of like classical historical telling is that uh the bargain becomes you know high high wages and, and stable jobs instead of that factory uh, floor control um and you know workers workers get the the stability and the high wages instead of their their former levels of of shop floor control and i guess uh, i think you say in the book that uh this violence that workers are experiencing from the production process itself and from the interpersonal violence that results from the violence of the production process uh, could have looked a lot different because they lost that modicum of control over the production process. This violence is able to skyrocket. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, Ruther himself, before before he died, would say things like in 64, he calls the auto factories gold-plated sweatshops and, and says, you know, we never actually fixed it working conditions. Like, I mean, this was something that was just, you know, kind of kicked down the road kind of indefinitely. And there was always things that uh, were more important to bargain against. And as you say, there was always other priorities. And I mean, interestingly, you know, when I was uh, researching uh, this, um, I was at a conference with uh, um, people who were active in the Dodge Revolutionary Union movement and people who, uh, you know, Dan Georgiakis, who wrote Detroit, Do Mind Dying. And somebody made the, someone made the point like, what would the uh, you know what would the trajectory of American labor look like if during the late sixties and seventies, the period I primarily focus on, when there's all this violence in the plants, it's widely known throughout you know any sector of labor, uh, you know that these plants are 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 out of control and are hurting and killing people, and that people are hurting and killing each other. What if it what if they listen to um, you know people in the Dodge Revolutionary Union movement and 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 the League of Revolutionary Black Workers and instead of saying these people like have to be crushed they have to be driven out of the union they have to be driven out of the plants say actually what these people rec are, are are people who recognize the problems and have a, a constituency in the plants and and have some solutions um, and they, they don't do that um, you know and part of that is 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 absolutely racial um, you know. I think the chapter that where I focus on the union's response at Dodge, Maine through the uh, Ed Liska, the white president of Local 3 at the time, like he is unable to understand these problems uh, as anything but racial militancy and, and solely black and white without seeing the larger context in which racial exploitation, racial organizing, these things are these things are happening. So I would definitely want to talk about drum. Um, let's just first, though, talk about uh, the sort of more detailed look at, at what this this violence looks like. You have a, a chart uh, where you uh, list out the the total number of uh, violent incidences uh, recorded in grievances at at Dodge, Maine, and uh, there's a real shift in 1965. You don't have to be an expert on. Uh, <laughs> statistics to realize that that's when the uh, the double digits uh the double digit numbers of uh, incidents of violence start in the dodge main plant 
Um, so can you just talk a little bit about what that shift was? I mean, the numbers go up pretty, they stay in the double digits between then and 1975, peaking in 1973 at 62 violent incidents. So we're talking about more than one violent incident at your job per week if you worked at, at Dodge Main. So can you talk about uh, what happened in 1965 that made those violent incidents rise and uh, maybe some... Uh, discussion of the sort of details of, of the kinds of things that were going on uh, in the plants that, that, that what, what, what actually did these individual numbers of violent incidents actually look like on the shop floor? Violence doesn't start in 1965, but uh, the increase in violence that you mentioned, Mike, attracts pretty well with um, the intensification of the labor process at Chrysler and doing that through the increased exploitation of young black workers. Um, and I would say that, that the plant, the way I define it in the book is, is I define it as outsider violence. And, and I talk about violence in Canadian plants that stays, stay more stable until the 80s as insider violence. You know, like uh, for people who have been on a football team or, or gone to a high school, you know, like the violence that takes place when you are bullying, uh, you know, people who are outside or you're enforcing codes of conduct, like you can't sit there or like, you know, we only wear red jackets on Saturdays or whatever nonsense, right? Um, this was outsider violence that you see happening. These are people who are coming into the plant and um, you know, most, almost all the supervisors are white, almost all the foremen are white, uh, union officials are white, and you know, they're being driven super hard. And uh, you know, a, a more this makes it a more dangerous labor process, right? Like things like accidents, in-plant deaths, these things are increasing. And so are violent incidents. And so what a lot of those look like, uh, the, other, the other digit uh, on the side is violent incidents involving management. Is, is not, you know, bullying would, you know, uh, uh, the new guy is, is, is kind of superseded by actual attacks at plant security, actual attacks at, at supervisors and foremen, arguing over things like lateness, things like production pace, things like, did you show up with beer on your breath? Like things that are, you know, we can all recognize take place at our jobs. But in the, in the atmosphere that they created, um, what I argue in the book is, you know, I can't look into anybody's heart or mind, you know, especially not 50 years ago and say, well, this is why this happened. But what I do argue is, is the conditions created by Chrysler increase the risk of, of workplace incidents becoming violent incidents. And what that looks like is, is really serious. It's people stabbing each other. It's people shooting at each other. It's people literally shooting and murdering each other. And the most, um, kind of, uh, well-known and well-remembered case, uh, which is also written extensively about by uh, Heather Thompson in her book, Who's Detroit, um, is the James Johnson incident of 1970, where a Chrysler worker, not at Dodge, Maine, but in Detroit at the Alden Axel plant, is, uh, you know, experiences repeated kind of workplace and racial harassment on the job, is suspended, and uh, fears that means he's fired, comes back to the plant, and shoots three people. And, and that's the kind of incident that unfortunately in, in America today and, and at times in other countries is, is incredibly depressingly mundane and familiar, um, but was incredibly novel at the time, so much so that there was a, you know, a major story in Newsweek about the trial. And, and, and it, was, it, 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 it required a real reckoning in Detroit over to what do we attribute the, uh, you know, this tragedy, these murders? Is it, is it you know, the disturbed mind of the killer or is it something we actually need to look at in the way that, 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 that the auto industry and the auto unions uh, are conducting themselves? And was there any real reckoning with that? Well, absolutely. I mean, what I argue in the book is, um, you know, I, I argue against, uh, we, it's so hard to shake the kind of perception that, uh, and part of it is our own arrogance of being, you know, the ones who are alive at any given time, that things are getting better, or at least that we know better now. I, mean, yeah, I think the things are getting better thing is kind of the window at this point, at least. But, you know, I think there's a belief that we know better now than people did. It's very hard for a lot of people to shake that, I think. Um, especially maybe coming in a Western knowledge system. And I argue in the book that I think it was more possible in 1970 Detroit to advance um, uh, an explanation of workplace violence that brought in things like racism, that brought in things like the labor process, than it is now. Um, and part of that is because of the radical organizing that was happening at these plants. Part of it was because of like, you know, radical attorneys uh, who took on the case, like Ken Cockrell and Justin Ravitz, who I talk about, who were able to, in the trial of James Johnson's murder, basically put Chrysler on trial 
trial and give national media attention to these kinds of crimes to the point with uh, James Johnson was found not criminally responsible. And uh, another attorney, Ron Glada, later won a worker's compensation claim against Chrysler. So that meant they had to pay him compensation for his injuries while he was uh, incarcerated in a mental institution. Wow. Uh, so you also talk in the book about how the, the things were going on outside of the factory floor impacted what was happening in the on the factory floor you have a very striking description of black workers in 1967 who had participated in the uprising in detroit then showing up to work and uh, i just remember the image of uh, guys walking in with afros and with uh, 50 caliber shell casings put on necklaces around their neck and it, it, I mean, you can't ask for a much more, uh, you know, blunt image of sort of taking the militancy that was uh, that was being expressed in the streets and, and sort of uh, bringing it into the uh, shop floor. And and uh, well, why, why don't you talk about how that happened and then what what that meant? Like, what did those guys with new newly grown out afros and shell casings around their neck then do in the plant? Sure. Yeah. Um you know, getting to have one of the one of the great experiences I had in researching this book was having the opportunity to sit down and talk with you know General Baker, the legendary Detroit organizer and activist who, who I, I remember I believe people wrote about in Jacobin when he passed a few years ago. And my friend and colleague David Goldberg is writing biography on him uh, right now, which should be really great. Um, and and General talked about people. You know, those fifty caliber shells were picked up right off of the street because you know the National Guard was in Detroit firing at people during the uprising in '67, right? And one of the things the general said was like a like you know he'd been involved in, in in radical left organizing for some time and black organizing, but one of the things that really struck him was the level to which capital and the state um, tried to make sure that black people still got to work during the uprising, that they still went to GM, they still went to Ford, they still went to Chrysler, but the line kept running, and he realized he told me that you know he's like the only value that that black people have in this society is as industrial workers at the time. Um, <laughs> And, and that was, that was a really fundamental lesson for him and some of the other people that started drum. So, um, you know, I think one of the, a lot of people have written a lot of good things about drum and, and, you know, people who were in drum and the league have spoken and written and made films and spoken very eloquently about themselves, but it is such an important formation that, that, you know, the story still continues and there's, there's so much more to know and remember. I think a lot of people, so, and it's, a, it's a wider narrative about black power and violence you know, but that, that black power is violent inherently, right? Like that's the stereotype that, that you often get. Which is what the white union leaders were saying, right? Absolutely. That's how they understood it. Yeah. And, and to some extent, I think actually um, it's interesting. And I don't know if this was co-optation or whatever, but people uh, at drum seem to get further talking to Chrysler themselves than they did with the UAW. In terms of uh, my contribution, what I was trying to say was that violence was happening in the plant and Drum was organizing out of that. Drum didn't bring violence into these Chrysler plants. Drum was experiencing violence in the streets, as you say, but also in the plants. And they were organizing around there. They're saying that, you know, this violence is happening because, you know, black workers are getting shit on and, and we need to do something about this. So, you know, General was quite honest about that they would they would seize on things like um, like the the James Johnson shootings. And, you know, the next week they had an article in the Dodge Revolutionary Union Movement newsletter that said James Johnson needed a Thompson uh, machine gun and celebrating somebody, which is a, you know, extremely controversial and harsh thing to say. Um, and, uh, you know, I've heard from workers saying that, like, when they were passing out that leaflet in front of the plant, they, they felt pretty trepidatious about that. Um, so drum kind of definitely played with, with the violence that was happening and also used violence rhetorically quite often. And it's important to remember the violence had, drum had a lot of violence directed against them um, by perhaps the UAW, by certainly the Hamtramck, uh, which is a you know, city kind of within Detroit police department. Um, and, and by, uh, um, and so that is a, that is a big part of the story of drum as well. Can, can you just explain for listeners who aren't familiar with drum, what exactly drum was and, and, and how it expanded beyond drum? Sure, um, I will do my best. Uh, so DRUM stands for uh, the Dodge Revolutionary Union Movement, which was a radical black power uh, union organizing that started within the Dodge main plant that I primarily write about and spread to lots of other plants. There's Elrum and Elden Avenue, um, you know, uh, there was a Ford one, there was, there was ones in, in Mawa, New Jersey. Um, there were uh, ones all over the, uh, uh, kind of the 
industrial Northeast and, and mostly the Midwest and the Detroit area. Um, and I would say it's one of the most significant um, workplace formations of, of the 20th century United States in its focus on racial capitalism, its focus on, uh, you know, uh, radically taking on capitalism and racial exploitation together at the point of production. Um, it was extraordinarily influential and, uh, you know, really um, caught the attention of uh, not only a lot of Detroiters, but the auto workers. Uh, you know, one of the things my, uh, my research shows, I think, is that the, the United Auto Workers and, uh, and the auto companies were extremely um, scared uh, is, 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 is a good word for it, I think. Um, and so, yeah, they're a very important uh, union formation that comes out of this. And, and I also argue in the book that violence was a very double-edged sword for them. So I say, you know, I, I do think that, 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 as I said, auto workers, you know, they, they kind of cleverly used, um, you know, rhetorical violence to get the UAW's attention, to get Chrysler's attention, and they were scared. Uh, and, and they had a lot behind their demands because of that. And Drum did get a lot of their demands in terms of more black foremen, for example, uh, or other health and safety measures. But also, you know, a relentless focus on violence and a relentless rhetoric of violence in, in, their, um, in their public statements also did drive a lot of people away. Um, and it was also an extremely heavily masculinized approach in, in a problematic way in what was already an incredibly masculinist uh, workplace, but not, um, especially in Detroit, exclusively masculine. There were women in these workplaces who were experiencing violence and also women who were using violence. Yeah, I mean, the environment was one that was just saturated with violence from head to toe, whether it was the job that you were doing every day or your interactions with other people, or your interaction with your foreman, all of it. I mean, the, the, their violent rhetoric doesn't come out of nowhere. No, and, and you know, one, of the, you know, one of the things that, that I tried to highlight in this book is people have always asked me, like, what do you define as violence? And, and, and I argue that, that like, what violence meant, what counted as violence was like something that was up for grabs in these factories. It was something that workers and unionists and radicals and, and the plant and UAW argued over. And there was like one uh, thing in the Eldon Wildcat, which was another radical newsletter that was circulated at plants that said, basically like, why is it like when a, when, a boss, when a worker gets frustrated and like punches out his boss, that's violence and it'll be on the news. But if like, you know, you work somebody too hard and they have a heart attack and die, that's not violence somehow, right? And, and drum, is, drum is like, uh, you know, there's, so there's multiple different forms of violence that people are dealing with in these plants. And so it does suffuse the culture and drum is drawing on that. After, after James Johnson, after that happens, uh, you know, there's an auto worker who goes in with the newspaper uh, and uh, the, he sees the foreman hassling one of his coworkers for being a few minutes late. And he goes out and he sticks that newspaper right in his face that, you know, talks about uh, a worker at a different auto plant in the same city, like murdering people. And, and so that is, um, you know, extremely uh, a part of the workplace culture. And, and people are using that in, in a variety of different ways. I just wanted to highlight for people who are interested out there that, um, the, the, the primary way you can like learn more about them is going straight to the source. Uh, the Detroit Revolutionary Movements Collection, which is held at the Ruther Library, has just recently been fully digitized by that library. And uh, if we're all looking for something, kind of research to do or ways to learn more during COVID, I would definitely recommend checking out, um, checking out the Ruther Library's uh, collection because um, it is uh, incredible material on, on radical history. Yeah, and I'll include a link to one or two of our articles about drum uh, in the description of this uh, this podcast that people can check out. Um, you have all of these details of these, uh, often very disturbing events that are happening on the factory floor, people getting shot or punched or, uh, beat up or whatever. Um, and, and I mean, that stuff is just fascinating to read on its own, but you mentioned at one point that things got so bad in the plants, uh, and clearly, they were bad in Detroit. Uh, you, you write about uh, what was going on in Ontario and, and that the violence was not quite as, as, as extreme, although it certainly wasn't non-existent in those plants. But uh, you write about how in 1968, the National Association of Manufacturers held a counterinsurgency seminar in Detroit uh, and distributed 600,000 copies of a pamphlet titled Industrial Planning Guide Against Civil Disorders. I mean, this is like... The, the, you know, the, the National Association of Manufacturers is like probably turning, if they're holding a counterinsurgency seminar, they're definitely turning 
in, in at least in part to like you know U.S. military. Uh, you, you don't say this in the book, but I assume they must be turning to U.S. military. You know, I mean, the, the Vietnam. That's the height of the Vietnam War, right? Like that's the height of this counterinsurgency campaign that's being waged in Vietnam. And then the the uh, the National Association of Manufacturers feels the need to take uh, probably take notes from what the U.S. was doing in Vietnam to pacify their own factories in Detroit. Absolutely, and and of course. Uh, you know, to add another layer of, of it, um, you know, it's it's in Detroit that they're making a lot of those war machines that are going over to Vietnam to be used to kill people there, right? And, and, and again, black radicals are making that point. They're saying, we're making these things, they're going over to Vietnam, and the next time we have an uprising, they're going to be bringing them right back home and pointing them at us. Uh, so yeah, all of that is is very much up for grabs. And, and, and you've hit on the one, I, I, have, I have never been able to find anything more on those NAM seminars those national associated manufacturers i've always wanted to find out more um but that kind of shows where things were at with uh, a very real fear of, of counterinsurgency in the plants and those plants being seized and that's another thing about this era that that has resulted in consequences for us as workers today because one thing that was happening at chrysler in response to those and again i'm sure in in um in connection with, as you say, the military industrial complex, all of a sudden at Chrysler, you start seeing, um, you know, a heavier investment in cameras, gates, weaponry, all of these things to, uh, to protect. And over the last 50 years, a fear of workplace violence, um, you know, morphing into going postal has been used uh, to justify all kinds of things, uh, personnel screenings, uh, keystroke software, you know, video cameras, uh, the perp walk, you know, I talk about in my book, I historicize it as happening to workers at, at Chrysler in the 60s, people being, you know, escorted violently out of the workplace because of the fear that a, a discharged employee represents an existential threat. Um, so like, we're kind of, uh, one of the things that I hope this book contributes to um, is, you know, uh, a lot of a lot of great scholars have done work on what they call the carceral state, and I think it is in this kind of era that we see um, a carceral workplace, and um, you know th these technologies of control and of surveillance being used effectively in the workplace to try to uh, you know deal with the people in your ranks and and, and screen out any other possible uh, threats um, you know to capital and property over the next fifty years. You, you include a block quote from the Drum newspaper talking about this, uh, this counterinsurgency seminar where they, they wrote, uh, quote, they further projected arming the plant protection guards with revolvers and in the key areas, guard towers with semi-automatic rifles. This sounds like something that, uh, you know, Foucault would have uh, had a field day with. It's like the, the, the factory is the prison. Absolutely. And, and at the time, I mean, I, and I think another crucial dynamic about this, like we've talked about how, you know, union leadership as well doesn't get drum and they're not willing to kind of say, hey, like, you know, we might not agree with when they say, you know, the UAW or, you know, sell out pigs, but like, let's, let's sit down and see what they have to say about, you know, what's happening on the line. Um, they are actually taking a step further where you have like high ranking unionists in Detroit going to secret meetings with, you know, auto executives and cops uh, and, you know, Michigan State troopers, I believe it is, uh, to try and say, well, what are we going to do about the plants, right? Um, so this fear of security, um, and which they use as, as, as they racialize as a fear of black militancy, you, it allows for kind of a um, rapprochement between capital and, and big labor that, that is, again, uh, going to be a problem 10 years later when, when, when you know, big labor is, is approached by capital and says, well, we want a bunch of concessions. We want a bunch of giveaways. Um, you know, really union leaders kind of see themselves as partners in maintaining order in the plant um, as opposed to, you know, representatives of workers. I have two questions about the nature of this violence. One is you, you've obviously been talking about how violent the production process itself was. That's the, the sort of uh, that is the, the ground upon which all of the, the rest of this stuff stands. That's the every, everything else is a product of that process. And um to thinking, moving, you know, fast forward several decades to thinking about work today in, in North America, obviously most, if not all of these plants that you describe in the book are, are gone or significantly diminished in, in Detroit and in Ontario. Um, how much of this is the, the, the product of the industrial labor process um, and doesn't 
produce the same kind of violent reactions as we are, you know, increasingly moving into a deindustrialized 21st century? Yeah. Um, like that's a good, that's a good, important question. And I think what, what to, to sum up my remarks overall, but I'd expand, I would say that for the most part, work is still exploitative at the point of production. And so therefore it's still violent. Uh, well, the us, uh, we at Jacobin, as Marxists would say, uh, all work is <laughs> still exploitative. Yeah. Uh, you know, I was trying to hold out, you know, uh, a little bit of hope for the, the unalienated <laughs> labor out there in, you know, in fits and starts. But yeah, pretty much. I mean, uh, one of the biggest books that inspired me to, to, to become like a, a historian of work and capitalism is Studs Terkel's book, Working. And the first quote in that, uh, which I borrowed uh, for the first quote in the introduction of this edited collection of workplace violence that we have coming out, is this is a book about work, which means it's a book about violence, right? And uh, so, yeah, violence changes over time. And, and I argue in the book that the kind of predominant, certainly not the only, but the predominant violence of say early industrialization in America was mass violence, right? It's Homestead, it's Ludlow, it's huge strikes with mass movements of workers, you know, squaring off against, uh, you know, tons of representatives of capital and the state on horseback. And you have these, you know, these huge basically wars uh, in, in parts of, of the United States and Canada. Um, and, and it becomes very atomized. Um, so part of this is, yeah, it's like the end of the post-war boom and these, these Chrysler plants, it's Chrysler, uh, as I think I quote some of the books saying, squeezing out the kind of last dregs they can uh, of, of this. But if you look at auto production today, Tesla work, um, there's been some great podcasts and investigative journalism done about the appalling um, carnage at, at Tesla factories. Um, and, uh, you know, Auto plants in the South, um, I, I believe you mentioned to me in, in our preparations for this show, and, and that certainly applies there. Um, and another example I would give you, and just out of strict day, obviously, um, the uh, you know, predominant or, or the central, the iconic company of, of, of current capitalism is Amazon. And, and Amazon warehouses are, you know, I argued on Twitter today, slaughterhouses. Uh, you know, somebody was posting some research that one in five at a major fulfillment center serving Los Angeles, one in five suffered not just an injury, but a debilitating injury. One in every five people suffering a debil like an injury that's going to seriously affect your life. Like that, uh, you know, shows that, that this type of violence uh, certainly is, is part and parcel of capitalism. What I would argue is that as capital has been given a freer and freer hand, that this type of violence in the workplace has become just kind of more common in other segments of, of, of everyday life. Well, that actually leads to my next question, which is that, so clearly the violence is still there in North American workplaces. It's not going anywhere. It's sort of inherent to the capitalist production process. But when, when I'm reading your book, I'm thinking of just how insane, I mean, I've never worked in a factory, so I guess I don't know what it's like to be on the actual the actual plant floor, but, uh, you know, you're just constantly struck by how, how violent everything. I mean, like these guys are showing mostly guys, they're showing up to work, uh, and they're like getting in fist fights and like, uh, and, and, and keeping their jobs in many cases, despite like pretty serious, uh, what, what the employer would consider, uh, malfeasance. And, um, I mean, we, we could say that work today is still violent in, in many ways that we can, point to from across many kinds of industries, but there doesn't seem to be that same level of like what, what you describe in the book of like violent, like intra worker or, you know, worker on, on supervisor, etc. type violence happening. Maybe it is and it's not reported. I, I don't know. But my question is, is the kind of violence that you describe in the book happening on the shop floor, um, the violence between people, um, is that a product of the historical context of high union density and full employment where you know if you if you sock a uh a, a, a foreman who's acting a fool uh you at least know that you've got you at least have some modicum of due process to, to process your claims and maybe you can like say well he you know he pushed me first or all of these things you know where the context you have at least some level of of defense and you also can then if you do get fired you can walk down the street and go to another auto plant and obviously the situation for american workers today is much different both in terms of unemployment even before covid began and in terms of not having a union to represent you if you engage in that kind how much of all of this that you're describing uh the 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 interpersonal violence on the shop floor is a product of that 
uh, you know, political economic context of 1960 to 1980 in, in the auto industry? Yeah, I would say a, a fair amount. Um, you know, I, I think I argue in the book, uh, I'll certainly argue here, that kind of every every motive of work under capitalism gets the kind of violence it deserves, right? <laughs> and and that's like why it's important to, 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 I think, have a historical lens on violence at work. I think it's really reveals a lot. And, you know, you've really hit on something where, um, basically I argue that, that in this era, the combination of the work being really shitty, right? Um, you know, the things that Ruther said they never fixed, but with the UAW being, you know, but certainly by the standards of today, a very strong union, especially in terms of getting people back on the job, meant that it kind of bakes in this really dysfunctional dynamic where people are miserable uh, and, and they hate their job. And, and also, I would argue, with the more bureaucratic kind of approach of the 60s and 70s, like things like beefs are not squashed, you know, with a meeting between a shop steward who holds a lot of power on the line and the boss and said, you know, you guys need to work this out because we're not going to have you fighting anymore. Um, you know, they just kind of simmer and seethe because you just like, you know, you get written up and you wait, right? Um, it basically leads to a situation where people are lashing out, but people aren't getting fired for it. So they're coming back. And that just, of course, you mean you have the same people. And, and, and so that, you know, conflicts just, just get worse and worse. So it is very particular to that time and, and particular to that workplace. Obviously, if I had, if I had written this book about the post office or, uh, you know, uh, um, you know, uh, retail office work, insurance, uh, there would certainly be violence. Um, the violence would have different levels and different forms because there was different risks. Um, and it's interesting if you look at that graph again, the biggest spike year is 1973, right? That's, that's, the, that's the crest of the wave. And, you know, those factories are still very dysfunctional after that, but uh, they get less violent. And, and one of the reasons why I think is, as you say, workers, um, you know, they just don't get their jobs back. Um, and, and I think that that is important. However, uh, then what you see in the next decade becoming really um, on the mind in kind of workplace culture and working class culture is precisely layoffs like people you know forget that the, the mass layoffs were a again a historical kind of um uh phenomenon that that rose during the 1980s uh that people like spent an enormous amount of time worrying about and thinking about and one of the biggest things of the of the 80s layoff era was the the, the fear growing and growing throughout the decade that the person was going to come back with a gun right um and you know the michael douglas movie falling down uh kind of dramatizes this um and so i think i think my book really kind of tries to trace how you get from uh, like Ludlow and Homestead to the kind of violence that's predicted in the Paul Schrader film, Blue Collar, you know, with, with Richard Pryor and Harvey Keitel to the kind of falling down era. And, and, and I would say, you know, in the, in the last 20 or 30 years, uh, you know, workplace violence has taken different forms, um, but certainly workplace violence is um, no less endemic than ever. And in the past five years, where we've really seen that is in terms of sexual exploitation and sexual violence at the workplace. And that's become, um, you know, more and more, um, we don't have the history, I think, to say whether it's more and more prevalent, but it's become more and more discussed as a particular type of, of workplace violence, I think that exists in an era where there's so much power disparity between people who have power to control people's access to work, particularly desirable work, uh, you know, in culture, in arts, in, in advertising, whatever, and the people who are trying to do that. Right. That was my last question is the uh, the changes in violence at work over time. I mean, you talk in the book about how in the, in the sort of earlier years, there's a kind of mob violence that, that takes a collective character. And then uh, over time, we move into sort of more individualized forms of violence that, that you know, especially sort of 80s and 90s, the idea that you mentioned several times of going postal, where the uh, the stress of, of the workplace finds a kind of individualized and atomized expression through the sort of like, quote unquote, sort of unhinged psycho individual workers like shooting up their workplace. And that that's certainly still with us. I mean, those headlines come, uh, you know, fairly frequently in, in the United States. Um, so I guess, you know, what is the what is the state of this kind of workplace violence uh, in North America today? Um, that's a good question. It's, as you say, it's obviously still very much with us. And it's something that, that you know, uh, 
it's not the only father to the kind of ritualized mass violence um, that people like Pat Blanchfield, who you know, write about really well. He's got a book coming out, Gunpower. But I would argue it is one of the most important spaces that is a father to you know the kind of everyday shooting, not only at workplaces now, but at you know daycares and schools and uh, you know nightclubs and basically every social space in American life. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that is a big part of answering the question: Where is it? Um, I, I would argue that the violence of the workplace is everywhere. Uh, is you know that, or, or I guess what I'm trying to say is, I believe that that sort of violence, as I said, has become ritualized in culture as a form of communication, um, and and I believe that it, that that kind of ritualization and that kind of communication began at work. So um, that would be my my fundamental answer. The other answer is, um, you know, again, I encourage. Um, people to check out. We've got this book coming out, uh, The Violence of Work, um, coming out uh, this winter. And there's some really good pieces by people uh, like Sarah Jessup and Emily Barbatorog who talk about kind of where that violence is in more of a service and retail setting. Um, so I think that that's a really good place to put it. Um, but the last thing I want, really want to close on, because Lord knows we've gone 45 minutes without talking about it, so now we have to, is, is the coronavirus. And, and to some extent in Canada and to a greater extent in the United States, you have seen capital uh, and the state do whatever it takes to push people back into work, to push people into the economy restarting again, literally at the cost of their own death, right? Literally, it's, it's more important to restart the economy, to you know, boost somebody's stock prices than it is to, for people to not die. And, and I was just, you know, like we have moments like, you know, living in, the, the current world that we live in, I think we all have moments where you're just like totally stunned and totally gobsmacked. And like for me, like it was, you know, sometime this summer when one of the big, like get people back to work, don't support people, you know, don't, don't do any of the things you need to do to say, actually people dying is, is more important than the economy. Um, you know, the unwillingness of, of capital and the state to do that in the United States. And I, I was thinking about it and I said, well, you know, I've spent six or seven years of my life an enormous amount of time arguing that work fundamentally is violent, right? That fundamentally is about, um, you know, producing profits over, you know, human life, health and flourishing. But I was like, I never thought it would be so bluntly and broadly demonstrated as I've seen it in the last six months. So that's where that is. I mean, we have a situation where it's very clear um, that work is violent, that work prevents risks of death for you know, millions of people. And yet the people in control of the levers of power and capital, uh, by and large, are very okay with just exposing people to as much of that risk as possible if it, if it gets the economy going. Jeremy, thank you very much. Thanks a lot, Micah. The Vast Majority is produced by Sarah Hurd. You can always reach out to us at vastmajoritypodcast at gmail.com. And please, if you are not already subscribed to Jacobin, Subscribe to our print issue, or you can get an online version at jacobinmag.com slash subscribe. <laughs>